Hello again, everyone. Hello. Hello. How are you doing, Matt? Matt, Matt oh my God. Yes. Matt, where are you? I can't see you. It's dark here. Where are you, Matt? You are dead, and you're in hell. Well, okay. I'd like to know what I did to end up there. Um, we don't have enough time in this episode to talk about that, if we're being honest. That's true. Do the listeners really <laughs> want to know that? I don't think so. No. No, no, that's a, that's a totally different podcast. That is not a PG podcast. No, it is not. Uh, as you hear, we have two different audios. I am in studio today, and Matt is at home today. Why are you at home today, so Matt? The real, uh, I am at home with my children. My wife is out, and uh, I want you to guess whether or not I'm wearing pants. Well, I know I do not have underwear on. That's for sure. That screenshot I sent you earlier. More fun that way. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, the poor viewing audience. If only they could see his name. I know. No, they don't want that. That's so true. That's so true. So what do we do? We talk about movies and all things movies. So let's talk all things movies. Movies. I love movies. You know, I feel like when I say Con Air and you go, Ew, that means you don't like movies. And that, well, no, I like good movies um, <laughs> because you know I don't like Con Air and I don't like uh, the movie The Rock. The mm-hmm. actor The Rock I love. Mm-hmm. You know who doesn't? Not my thing. Uh, Sean Connery did uh, just mail it in in The Rock, so that doesn't count. And John Cusack maybe not good in uh, a lot of roles, including Con Air, but. It still works. And the first 30 minutes, 45 minutes, come on, when he's listing the criminals and they've all got fancy names for themselves, that's good stuff. It's so dumb. Sai Yonara. Yes. Come on. That's an homage to all the great 80s films that we loved so much. Yeah, but it was like 1995. Actually, it's 98. But I hear what you're saying. Was it 98? 98 when Con Air came out. Oh my god, that's so far out of time. Like ten years. Oh, that that actually kind of makes me really sad. Does it make you feel old? No, no, no. What makes me feel old is the Ninja Turtles cartoon. The original one premiered like thirty-one years ago last week. That makes me feel old. Yeah, we should be dead by now. It's all <laughs> on borrowed time. Give me a minute. Yeah, trust me. Wait, what am I saying? I'm already in hell, according to you. Heyo, and that's the show. All back. <laughs> right. Hey, uh, so let's go from Conair, uh, the most beautiful of films, to uh, the films that will be made in the future. Uh, the Blacklist has come out with a new list. The list every year that they do with the uh, best unproduced scripts, screenplays, as it were. And according uh, to whom? According to the guy who makes the list. Okay, this is my issue with the list. Yes, go um, for I remember it. first hearing about the blacklist probably back in college. Yes. And it wasn't like a thing that had a website or anybody like outside of the industry knew anything about it. It was more of like a, there's a secret list of all the, and it was like an unofficial list, right? Mm-hmm. It was kind of word of mouth. Sure. And now it's turned into a thing. And it feels fake and weird and wrong and my problem is every time i see one of these movies produced that had been on the blacklist mm-hmm. never any good at least not that i can remember okay well and automatically, it, it just okay automatically you're wrong because there has been how many oscar nominations for blue uh blue list blacklist movies in the last 10 years 
How many? Well, I mean, we can. I mean, that, that's a whole other ball of wax to get into <laughs> about the Oscars and sure. how, you know, and we've talked about that before. I mean, I'm, I'm not telling anyone they should go on Twitter and you know hashtag no more Oscars, but maybe we should hashtag no more Oscars. Maybe they should do that. Um. Yeah. Well. Uh, okay. Fine. Fair enough. There has to be a barometer, though. There has to be a barometer, and four Oscar nominations out of the last ten. Or winners, I think. I think it's blacklist script winners out of the last ten. That's pretty impressive. The Shape of Water, the other three that I don't remember right now. Well, yeah, again, Shape of Water is not even his best movie. But it won. Everybody yeah, loves again. fish sex. <laughs> the good crap about, you know, what wins. Crash won. Yeah, that's true. Crash won Best Picture of 2004. Will there that ever be a movie? Everything. No, fair. Uh, will there be a movie in our lifetimes that we replace Crash with that wins an Oscar that's like, oh, my God, how in the world did You know, this I happen? hope not. I hope not. But it's kind of like, remember when everyone was going crazy about the artist? Yes. You know, which was just a kind of a slightly worse version of Rain. Sure. Um, everyone went crazy for the artist. And that won a bunch of awards. And... When was the last time anyone talked about it besides me just now? Never. But right. we still talk about tra- uh, Crash, which was trash, and it keeps kind of lingering. Is it going to come to a point where it's good again, or if good for the first time? No. No. Never. No, that movie is utter trash. It's, And I think it, it kind of exemplifies why I think the Oscars – tend to be kind of filled with BS and in association why the uh, uh, the blacklist is kind of suspect anyway. Mm. Well, you know, because I, I mean, Franklin and I support everything he does and hopefully next year he'll put me on the list. That's what this is. You're just sucking up. Yes, 100%. Now, I'm would fine. you rather be yeah. on the blacklist for a few years or, or and, you know, be in production hell or just get your thing made straight off? Um, well, mm, that's a hard say because that's, one, that's okay. one of those things now where it's like, oh, this is on the blacklist. That means it's good. Oh, the post, the post was one of the other scripts that, uh, that was nominated for Oscars from the blacklist. And I mean, that didn't get delayed. That was what? 15 months from starting the script to in theaters. About, okay. Yeah. That was one that Spielberg seemed to just like do over. And it does. Certainly it's an anomaly. Like, that doesn't happen every time. But, I mean, it is an example of something that can be done that way. Especially, like, you look at this this year's list. And this year's list is a lot about social media. It's a lot about people involved in that. And stories that are reticent to, like, right now. So, there's definitely an, an availability and ability to be able to put those into production now. Because they are they're important to do right now. Rather than let them wait yeah. for you know, a couple of years. Well, I don't think social media is going anywhere, but I get what you're saying. I mean, they, they, there's one about the Twitter CEO that apparently is a terrible person, I think, and something about Facebook. And Well, I mean, of course we already knew. Like, do we really need a movie to tell us that the Twitter CEO is a horrible guy? I mean, he hasn't kicked Donald Trump off yet. Like, we kind of knew. Like, people have gotten kicked off Twitter for a lot less than what every single day. Yeah, but they don't get the, the the publicity from them that they get from Trump. 
That's not a good no, reason, just, but it that, is the reason. That, yeah, it's morally just terrible. It makes me hurt. Yeah. Well, that's enough about them. Um, let's move on. So what do we decide about the blacklist? Nothing. We're still... You love it, and I hate it still. I don't even hate it. I just kind of a non thing for me. Yeah, my script will be on there next month, so look for it. Not you, because you Do don't it. read it, but other people look for it. <laughs> All right. So, talking about online people saying things and whatnot, uh, Bill Maher had oh. something to say uh, recently yeah. about the passing. Um, some guy, I think he did uh, maybe Spider-Man or something. What was his name? Okay. Yeah, so Bill Maher did what he always does. And mm-hmm. uh, he's trying to generate noise. And he went online and posted a blog talking about how it's ridiculous that grown-ups are upset about the passing of Stanley. Right. Now, let me preface this by saying... Um, I worked with Stanley for a couple of years, uh, got to know him a bit, uh, spent time in his home, um, and he was a genuinely sweet guy. And on top of that, I grew up reading Marvel comics, and every comic I read, you know, he had Stan Soapbox, and I read that. And he voiced uh, uh, video games and cartoons, and he was the face of Marvel. Mm-hmm. And while some people, like Bill Maher can dismiss that. Let's let's take a look at what our culture is producing right now. Superheroes, if it weren't for them, uh, we wouldn't have a functioning movie industry right now. That is amazing. For the last window. twenty, for the last twenty, maybe thirty years, superhero movies have been holding up this industry. Yes, and more than that, um, comic books are one of the five American art. It's one that, and he didn't even. He wasn't even the sole creator of a lot of the characters. That doesn't mean he's not basically the grandfather of comics. He really um, he's the face, or he was got the you. face of an entire industry. An industry that is literature, art, comics, video games, all sorts of ancillary products, movies, TV shows, you name it. They are dominating, and most of them are his characters. Well, DC can't release a decent movie to save his life. No, DC can't release a decent movie right now to save their life, but we just had an animated Spider-Man movie with a Spider-Man most people don't know about. Just absolutely dominate the box office. And on top of it, it might be the most interesting interesting movie I've ever seen. And I think his, you know, he said a lot of crazy things in there. Some things I agreed with, some things I didn't. But I think the the most important thing he was trying to say, and you just said something about it, is is literature, the ability for people to to actually read their story and visualize it themselves and create this, uh, you know, something in your head that's not there. You use read the words and you create it yourself rather than reading the words. Certainly, comic books obviously have words in them and stories in them, but you still get the visuals and you don't create that. Uh, on your own, in your own world, in your own mind. So I think that that yeah, it's has just, it, me some. It's just a different, it might it might bother him, but it's just a different art form. And it's something that is kind of weird here in America because that form of entertainment, you want to call them comic books, you want to call them whatever, it's incredibly, incredibly popular in South America, Europe, Asia. It's considered just another form of literature and entertainment. It's not considered lesser than, but here in America, 
for some reason, comic books, animation is all considered lesser than. Mm-hmm. And he's one of those people. Unfortunately, I'm one of the people that's on the other side where I think it actually does more. I, um, I heard a really great argument one year when I was at San Diego Comic-Con that said it's the only form of uh, art that stimulates both sides of the brain at the same time because you are rating, but you're also ingesting beautiful artwork. It is a mm-hmm. combination. And on top of that, it's still a story. And what were some of the first stories? They were drawn. They were cave paintings. Uh, pornography. It is as yes. legitimate as anything else. It's just a different form. And that's a good point. I mean, I do love uh, the good uh, Roman pottery, the, the stories that they told, wildly inappropriate, or the cave paintings in France and, uh, and all that stuff. Okay, so that's all fair. I hear you. Um, I'm in the middle. I think that people should read just word books sometimes because um, I don't well, think that we're doing that's enough the thing. of that. Well, I, I agree, but the thing is, he's just making this assumption that people who like comics only read comics, and that's, yeah. that's ridiculous. That's, that's not true. the case. That's true. I will read the comic, but I'll also read you know, something from a scientific journal. It doesn't matter to me. I like all sorts of different types of content, but he automatically just uh, associated comics with children, and that is not the case. Go to Japan. And take a look at people on a train and see how many adults are reading comics. They all are. Yeah, and the good thing is, starting to change here in this country a little bit just because comic book movies have become so popular. And it took me a while to realize why comic book movies are more popular now than when you know we were kids. And it's because the technology's caught up. Yeah. And now we like like I liked comic books as a kid because I could take a look at all these amazing fantasy and sci-fi worlds and stories. And the pictures would help me make it come alive, right? I was able to use my imagination to make it more than than it was. And now, movies have gotten to the point to where people can have that same utilization of their imagination. And people now, who wouldn't have liked comic books in the past, are actually what we've seen, uh, us nerds have seen for our entire lives. So when they go see Spider-Man swinging around a city, and they're like, this is awesome. It's like, yeah, we've been trying to tell you. Because mm. this is what in our head. Okay, so with 30 seconds left, let's, uh, let's agree to understand that they are stories. Everything's a story. Anything that you know, can, can create something, a magic for the young people. Or the old people as well. You know, anything sometimes to release us from this world. And so they don't kill us all in movie theaters because they're so upset about things. So support them. I'll just say one last thing. I would love for Bill Maher to sit down and read a copy of Mark Wade and Alex Ross's Kingdom Come and tell me that is not art. I bet he could. Anywho, moving on to our next topic. Uh, let's talk about live-action remakes. This is something you are fascinated by, and I don't know anything about. Um, I will have some questions oh, uh, that will fire off to you. Go ahead. Well, it's funny that you mentioned live-action remakes because just today they released the picture, the first pictures from the Aladdin remake. I, I, see. I saw that, yes. Smith as the genie. Mm-hmm. And, man, the Internet's not having this. <laughs> There was a little bit of a hullabaloo about it. It was kind of weird. I'm going to be honest. I saw it, the picture, and I was like, oh, well, that's something. 
Well, my, my, my problem is when you have a movie like The Lion King and they're calling it a live-action remake, mm-hmm. and all it is is computer-generated imagery, that's animation. It's just a right. different form of animation. It looks photoreal, maybe, but it's not live-action at all. So live-action remakes, you see the Beauties and the Beast, you see the religious stuff like Tyler Perry did. Obviously, those you know can, can relate can be made into live action, but could something else be made? Could it be useful to remake Papillon? I actually think that if you can do something different with the story, then you should be able to do a live action remake of something or do uh, an animated remake of something that's already live action. I don't think, I think that if you do that though, if you do a remake of something, you should do something different. And that's kind of what my issue with uh, like the teaser for the Lion King is. Right. You see the teaser for The Lion King, and it's literally the opening scene from The Lion King, shot for shot. At that point, why? Oh, why so it's like it? a Gus Van Sant situation. Well, Gus Van Sant admitted that he did it as like a like an experiment, right? and he basically just gambled away $80 million of <laughs> universe's money, which is mm. kind of great. If only. But, um, or however much it was. Right. But um, my, my thing, my, my problem is, you know, I... I took my kids to go see the Beauty and the Beast remake, and it did a couple of things differently, but it wasn't enough to justify it and wasn't as cinematic as the cartoon. So if you're going to do a live-action remake, then do something different. The uh, John Favreau's uh, Jungle Book mm-hmm. was actually kind of interesting because it looked like a studio film from like the 30s, but, you know, really high-tech. Right. And, you know, they, they didn't have a whole lot of singing and dancing. So that, that was kind of neat. It wasn't no a shot for shot remake of the original. That's, that seems like part of it. So Disney has 20 live-action movies on the slate to be to do. To bring, whether it's The Jungle Book, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, all that kind of stuff. How about Dumbo, for example? Yeah. Like that's something that's not ancient, but, you know, it's not... New, it hasn't been redone recently. Do the kiddies really know that? Well, I think it's that's like 75 years old, <laughs> right? Yeah, what 1940, 41. I mean, that that yeah. should be you can stay old. with the same story <laughs> with that because it's not been you know in in society or in culture for a while. Whereas Lion King, well, not, we all know that stuff, that, and we do not just that. It looks like they're going to focus on uh, the people around him and not just a talking mouse, you know? Oh, okay like they did in the original. So, again, they're doing something different. And, honestly, it's the first movie in a long time, maybe almost 18 years, Tim Burton, that I've wanted to see. Like, it looks interesting. Now, will it be? I, I, I Probably not. Let's see. But I'm now 38 years old. Um, so that would be 39 years since I've looked forward to, to a uh, Tim Burton movie. <laughs> uh, Scissor Hands was fine, but... You didn't oh. like uh, Beetlejuice? Nope. Mm-mm. I mean, it's fine, but I sure the heck am not going to go run out and watch it again. I'll watch Clannier at midnight on a Tuesday. Ed Wood? No, definitely not. No, Ed no, Wood? Nope. Nope. The not hell is wrong with you? Not for me. I've fallen out of love with Johnny Depp in a lot of ways. And now that I have... Well, me too. And it happened, right after, uh, it happened right after uh, Sleepy Hollow, which I think is probably his, one of his best things. All right, take it back. I fell out of love with him right after Blow. Mm, I can see that. Just as long as Blow is in there. I approve of that one. 
But everything else, mm, I don't know. So before we get off on uh, too far of a tangent, so um, you'll support some, not all of them. You watched the Tyler Perry last year, loved it, want to see it again. You would go I see did it not, live. I didn't even know that. I didn't even know that was a thing. Well, it's like a church thing. It was like a whole thing. Like it was on TV. I think it was on Fox. You know, they'll put on anything on Fox. If you could do okay. a live action remake of anything, what would it be? Oh, live action remake. Um, can we do one? Can we do it just a stage play of uh, Cool Runnings, just with white guys? Probably not. Okay. Okay. Um, well, I'll keep thinking about it. I'll get back to you on that. I don't have anything. You know, as you asked a question, I'm just going through the old noodle. And uh, no, can't think of nothing. Nope. Hang on, wait. Wait. Nope. I don't think I'd want to do a live action remake of most cartoons because most cartoons are kind of great on their own. Yeah, it's really hard you know to make a cartoon into a real thing. And, and, and actually, it's kind of interesting that this is a big thing where they're trying to make live-action versions of their old movies. And I get why they're doing it, because they already have the built-in fan base. But you just had a an animated Spider-Man movie come out. Mm-hmm. That's the best Spider-Man movie ever, one of the best superhero movies ever. And again, visually, one of the most interesting things I've ever seen. I kind of wish they'd do that. They'd take more live-action properties and do an animated version. Can you imagine a really cool Art Deco version of Metropolis. It'd be better than the original. Oh, don't care. Yeah, I'm throwing daggers. Don't I'm throwing daggers. And my answer, Danger Mouse. Let's redo Danger Mouse. You know what? They tried to back in the early 2000s, but it kind of went the same way as Underdog. Well, they didn't call me. If they had called me, had it done. Could do it now. Call me tomorrow. I'll do it. Set it up. Set up the meetings. I got your script. Danger Mouse. Live action. Starring Michael B. Jordan. It'd be great. I don't hear the phone ring. Oh, well. Moving on. <laughs> let's get into something. Let's, uh, let's really deep dive. Let's talk about one of our most fascinating movies. One that we love. I think so. I can talk for you on this one. There will be... Bl- oh, yeah. Uh, probably the best movie of the last 50 years. Probably. I can't argue against that. I can't argue for it, necessarily. But Maybe that or The Revenant. I watched The Revenant again last night, and that might... That, that's definitely my top five ever. Well, I'll tell you again, what makes but... this movie definitely better than The Revenant is the characters. The, the depth, yes. the yes. madness, the, the intrigue that all these characters, Paul Thomas Anderson created for There Will Be Blood, is just epic. Uh, next level... Well, well can, we, can we be honest? It, it is one character and everyone else who gets in his wake. Everyone so, else is interesting... As interesting as they are, it is the Daniel Day Lewis show from the first from the first round. Daniel Day Lewis slash Daniel Plainview uh, is the uh, is definitely oh, yeah. the antagonist and the antagonist and um, and the villain and the big baddie and all that wrapped into one. I'm sure his son thinks. Yeah, that I way. love the fact that the antagonist in the movie is actually a, a preacher. Yes, <laughs> and really, he really wasn't that bad. He was just trying to help his uh, his flock. I think that... Uh, no, no, no. It is all about Eli. Like, Eli is such a self-centered liar. Well, That's what makes him really interesting. Yes. But under because, the guise and of helping his flock. What gives it away that Eli is all about Eli. He's just as selfish as Daniel is. What gives it away is when he goes to talk to him about uh, the opening of the, the drill site. Right? Yes. Mm-hmm. And he says, uh, when would you like me to bless it? And it was all about him blessing it. And, you know, that, of course, rubbed Daniel the wrong way. But 
it's not about this is for the grace of God. It is, you know, I have to bless it. Right. Who is and then Dana when Plainview? He comes Who to Daniel, well, when he comes to Daniel at the end, too, you kind of get the idea that he's been out in the world. He's been worldly. He's made some business investments. And you're like, well, where did he get that money? Right. And he's not, you know, he's not on the up and up. And he isn't from the first moment. And what makes him worse than Daniel is at least Daniel took care of that kid. It's the only thing that makes him even slightly redeemable. I don't know if he took care of that kid. I don't. I don't think so. I don't think so. Is he the? Well, I mean, we can start there. Is he the parent that comes after he blows out his ears to quote unquote save him, even though he leaves him behind? Is he the character that sends the kid away? Is he is the epitome of Daniel Plainview when he <laughs> when he murders his brother, or is it some other time in the film? Well, first of all, it's not his brother. Well, okay, sorry. Yes, the man pretending yeah. to be his brother. Yes, sorry. Chummy with the guy until he found out that he had been lying, and that was a personal attack. Yeah. Um, and this is what makes him such an interesting character because he didn't need to take care of the kid, but he does. And then yes used him as a way of ingratiating himself to people, but he took care of him. And when he sent him away, it was because he didn't know what to do. Even It's my favorite line in the movie where he goes, does your sound come back to you? Does it? I don't know. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't know how to take care of it, so he does what he thinks is right and sends him to the nicest school that he can with a nice room. You wanted to make sure it was a nice room. I think children would say, hey, thanks for taking care of me by sending me away. No, 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 no. And this is where, you know, taking a look at it now that I'm a parent is interesting because, you know, when I first saw it, I was like, how can he do it? And now that I see it, I'm like, oh, he really just wants the best for his kid. And it's not the right decision, and he does it in the worst way. Mm -hmm. But... When uh, Eli forces him to say, you know, I abandoned my child, he says it over and over, and then he says, I abandoned my boy, and he starts to cry. And you realize he really does care for this kid. And after he realizes he did abandon him and admits it to himself, what happens? He brings him back. Is he, the way that he looks at that, the way he responds to that, that's a little like Thanos. And the fact that, uh, you know, he says what he's doing is for the greater good. But is it? Well, no, no, it's not. But the thing is, he believes it. And that's what makes him interesting. You know, he's not a mustache twirling villain. Right. When he finds out that this guy, you know, if he was who he says he was, is his half brother, he welcomes him in, gives him a job, goes on that trip with him to help him make his fortune. And he opens himself up. And that's the thing. When you first see Daniel, he's out in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> Like yep. there's nobody around, alone. Um, and he's mining for gold. Yeah, right. He breaks his leg, and then he starts to pull himself across the ground, and the camera tilts up, and you see there's nothing for a dozen miles. Next shot, he's lying in you know that uh, that room where they're counting his gold, mm-hmm. and he's getting the deed. So you can tell already he's solitary. And when he opens himself up to somebody, he doesn't do it easily. And the second they violate his trust, he shuts them out because it's a violation of of him. 
That's his like that line. is the most Don't intimate thing he line. could do. Right. So he's with his son and he approves of the marriage of all of that. But then when he's, his son says he wants to go out on his own, it's just he automatically turns his back on him. Bastard and And then the same thing. Right. And then the same thing with his brother. He had no reason to bring this guy in, but he does. He gets very close with him. And then once he finds out that he did have a brother, but he's dead and this guy lied about it. Well, that you know, kind of drove him over the edge. Yeah, where is again, that's line? what makes him so interesting. I have a question: Where is his so, line? Like, where does he draw the the line for that? You know, um, yeah, I trust you. I do line. this, but at a certain point, here's where that ends. Um, it's the moment that his trust is violated. When the moment he feels like someone has turned their back on him, it's like, well, then why did I open myself up to this? And it's it's an immediate thing. And I don't think there's necessarily a line. It's more like a switch, you know. What, um, you know, I remember him being uh, dirty in the beginning. Switches to the nice uh, outfits as he goes to sell and pitch uh, himself and the son to the world. How uh-huh. much of that in the character really kind of helped develop who that was? How we as an audience kind of saw him and felt him as far as how he approached the world? Well, I, I think that you know. The way you see him at the beginning, especially with that beard where it doesn't even look like uh, <laughs> Daniel Day-Lewis, you know, mm-hmm. um, you automatically get that this is a solitary guy and he's fine with it. You know, he doesn't have, like, letters from home or anything. He's fine being on his own. Yeah. He, Like he says, he has a, a solitary purpose. And that's kind of, you know, that's displayed in who he is. And even when er, in his wardrobe, and when even later on, when he's made his money, and he has that weird scene where he puts the napkin over his face, yeah, uh, and he's talking to his son, but it's really to the uh, the other uh, oil guys across the table. You know, mm-hmm. even then, he's in nicer clothes, but it's not as nice as he should be for someone of his station. You know, you get the idea that. He is still this rough and tumble guy. Absolutely. Is there a woman that could tame him? What would a woman do for him? Was there a reason that they, they he didn't have a love interest in the movie? Would okay. that have changed you know how he was? It's interesting that you said that because when uh, he's getting baptized, uh, one of the things that uh, that uh, Eli mentions is all uh, the womanizing, which you never see. And when his brother, his fake brother, is at the uh, uh, asking him for money, and he's drunk. It's hard to tell where they are, but they're they're at a brothel. So what's interesting about him is that it's not important because to him it's not important. He never married, you know. It it was it's not a thing that it would. It's a distraction. That's probably yeah. That probably you know? is. He's uh, single-mindedly focused on the one thing, and there's no way that a relationship could uh, to to enter into that. It wouldn't work. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Any other characters that uh, that you want to talk about from here? Um, I kind of love uh, uh, Eli's father, who's just oh, like yes. this oddly old, meek guy who lets his son just beat the crap out of him, and he gets called stupid, and kind of get the feeling that he is. 
But then you also find out that he's been beating his daughter, and he doesn't seem like the guy to do that. You know, it, like that character is really weird. I, I'd like to know more about him, but again, it's the Daniel playing story. It's not. Oh, it's not him. Uh, the one, the one character that I feel like that we didn't talk about is the landscape. How this film really worked within West Texas oh. and the way that it was shot, and I just really feel like between the landscape and the music, those were number two and number three as far as characters in the movie go. Well, first of all, I love the fact that it takes place in Bakersfield. And even he's like, I'd rather go out to the middle of West Texas in the middle of nothing to go to Bakersfield. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, no, well, I mean, that first shot, that's just those mountains and everything's dusty and dry. I've never seen a movie with so little color look so pretty. Mm-hmm. You know? And, Western, yeah. you know, John Ford. Stagecoach, maybe. But, but I mean, even Stagecoach, you know, you have those rock pillars, you know? Mm-hmm. This is just everything is white and brown. And it's incredibly interesting. Um, but yeah, the, the landscape and the music, they're like, you're right, they are like characters because... the, the When the old Derek they, scene, the old Derek scene is the quintessential yeah. moment in that movie and it includes all those scenes, the landscape, the music, and Daniel Plainview. Yeah, and the thing I love about the music is the fact that it's not typical movie music it's all kind of disjointed and weird you know yes um but it makes you feel kind of isolated which plain view is and you're isolated out in the middle of nowhere in this entire movie in fact when you are inside his mansion at the end even that is isolated because there's nothing there there are no lights on it's just him spacious empty and creepy yeah my dream house. <laughs> one day, one day. So, uh, while we're talking, there will be blood. Let's roll into talk about uh, something that got released on Netflix and in the theater recently. Buster Scruggs, the new flick oh, slash short story collection by the Coen Brothers. Do we call this a movie? Do we call this a short story? Does it matter? Kind of, because they released it as a film, and the entire time I was trying to find some kind of narrative, narrative. thread. Yeah. And there's not. There's abs- except like most of these are really upsetting. <laughs> and it it didn't work. I don't think that it worked because of that. Because it was it disjointed. Because it's you know a series rather than a film, and it's not coffee and cigarettes. When Jim Jarmusch says coffee and cigarettes, well, those <laughs> things work together in you know small cohesive groups. Right. But this was. Yes, the ideas of the West and the ideas that how the West infl- uh, uh, interacts with us now are there, but they're. You know, it's not like there's not a through line. There's no okay, this no. person was there or this situation. Look, I love to see Tom Waits digging holes. I can watch that for an hour and a half. Make that movie. But to, well, that to put all these together, I, I, I don't know if it worked. I was expecting a through line to be something like kind of like a, a thousand ways to die in the West or something, you mm-hmm. know? And then um, I think the Tom Waits one, that one ends with him alive, right? Yes. Yeah. And that one happened, and I'm like, oh, well, there goes, there goes that. <laughs> you know, and any, any idea of there being some kind of uh, thread that tied them all together went away, you know? Um, especially when it's called The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, and he's only in the first, like, ten minutes of the movie. If they follow Buster Scruggs for an hour and a half, that would have been their best film in a decade and a half. Oh, without a doubt. 
without a doubt. And, and that made me a little I, sad. I, think, I got all excited. I was like, oh, sweet. This is going to be part of it. They're going to tell some different stories, but he'll come back, and there'll be a whole thing. And no, nothing. Right. I thought he would show up as, like, maybe we saw the end first, and then, you know, he yeah. plays, Flashbacks like, a tertiary part and the other, you know, no. I mean, and then the one guy, that uh, shows, I don't even know what that was about. Oh, yeah, I don't either. Um, I want to say that the Clone Brothers are smarter than I'll ever be in the history of myself. So this is just me picking on people that are better than me. I don't want to mislead anybody saying that I could do something better than Coen Brothers. It's just they have such a high bar. I expect so much from them, and I'm always excited when they have something, whether I enjoy it or whether I don't, because it's always something. And this was something. I just would have preferred Buster Shrugs for an hour and a half. No, no, I agree. And my thing is, the reason why I'm kind of dogging on it is because there's so much in there that I like and so much that I think they could have done with it. Like the, um, the one with uh, Liam Neeson, I loved. I loved that one. But it didn't do a whole lot. And I think that it almost feels like they had a, a stack of ideas and they did like one pass on them and they're like, okay, we're ready to go. Yeah. And I, it, it feels like a missed opportunity. And that's what's frustrating about it. I would have liked to see the, the, the armless, legless dude drown. Like, this doesn't have to be no country for an old man. You don't have to kill James Rowland or Josh Rowland off screen. Play that. Like, that's yeah. what you're working towards. I felt like that you that didn't earn that. Exactly. Exactly. It made me a little and sad. And, like, how did those two guys get together? You know? Right. Yeah. Like, show me something. So it didn't work. I'm glad I didn't see it in the theater, only because I'm cheap and I don't want to pay theater process. I'm glad it was on Netflix. Oh, same here. I mean, I really wanted to go see. I think it's still important to go see important directors like that. Like, I'll go see. Oh, I'll go get sick watching the house Jack build just so I can see a Lars von Trier movie in the theater to support that because his films are uh, for Netflix. Is is Roma playing in theaters? Uh, yes. That's what I'm like. That's what everybody says. It's you know, it's visually. Stunning. And, you know, it's something that you should see on a big screen. No matter how big your TV is at the house, it's not the same as a movie theater. No, it's not. And you can't isolate, and you're not in the dark, and if you're at the house, you're probably still on your phone. Like, nobody just latches himself into a room at the house to watch a movie. That doesn't work. We don't do that. Yeah. And it makes me sad. Comedies especially don't work when you're at home alone. No, because you're just laughing with yourself, and that's just creepy. And I think that's why I never liked... uh... Uh, something about Mary because the first time I watched it I had rented it and I watched it on my own I'm like this is terrible Yeah, this is not funny at all and then I watched it a couple months later with some friends they wanted to put it on and then it's like oh this is great I'm like oh I should have seen this in the theater <laughs> Friday night at the movies that's the best because you get with comedies at least because you get the energy of the, of, yes. of the crowd and you get everything else and yes sometimes people talk over things but you know what I'm okay with that because it's you know you're interacting with the movie and that's cool well, also, a Friday scene of comedy is great because it's people uh, just kind of letting off all their all their bad vibes from the rest of the week. Yeah. You know, and they'll give in to the laughter easier. I agree. I agree completely. Go to movies. Opening weekend. It's fun. Just buy your tickets early so you don't get there, and then you're high, and then you can't get in, and then you're stoned, and then what are you going to do? I'm here for help. <laughs> That's what I'm here for. Let's finish up with this. Um, one uh, idea that I'm really fascinated by right now is, I don't have a topic title for this, but basically the idea is, 
was a movie like JFK or other movies like that where they it wasn't really what happened, but people have kind of taken that as historical fact now. How does oh. that happen? Do will there be more movies like that? Is that good? Is that bad? Is that a design? Like I assume that Oliver Stone thought I'm making this movie JFK. This is the reality, and everybody's going to believe it. But other movies don't have to be like that. Well, I think uh, I, I know why. Is it first of all, it happens all the time, yeah. where people misconstrue uh, some narrative fiction for reality. It happens all the time. It's always happened. It's why people believe uh, that you know Columbus landed in America. It's why people believe uh, Paul Revere. Um, you know, writing through it's it's why we believe a lot of the stuff that we believe. Mm. Um, and unfortunately, it's going to happen more and more and more and more because people are more willing than ever to believe in you know fake news. And it's difficult for people to tell what's true and what's not because they don't want to go find answers, especially ones that might not be convenient. And I don't know if it it's always intended. I to, to mislead people. Sometimes it is. JFK, I think he was honestly making a narrative that he wanted to see with what he thought was the, the truth. I got you. Um, I don't know if we should blame him for everyone thinking that, <laughs> you know, that's the way things happened. Yeah. But he's not innocent in it. You know, that's for sure. That's for sure. Hey, you know, we talked exactly about like what um, you wanted to do. Yeah, yeah, we talked about the post earlier. Um, there were a lot of accuracies in that film, but it looks at it just specifically through the Washington Post and the New York Times and some of the other newspapers were just as diligent about the Watergate scandal, how the movie had to paint it, and you couldn't give a whole picture of that. But also, it's a misrepresentation of history. Yeah. Now, um, there's a uh, great part if you watch. The, uh, making of documentary about Titanic, where he had that's uh, all real. The that utmost happened. Expert, yeah, he had the utmost ex- expert on everything Titanic on set with him all the time. And at one point, they were doing the scene where they're lowering the lifeboats, and one of them almost crushes the other, right? And the guy stops them while they're doing rehearsals and says, "Uh, that didn't happen." They were really like 15 feet apart, and they never got that close. He's born screaming. And for a guy who went out of his way to tell everyone this is the most realistic way, the realistic version of it, like the only difference between this and real life is that Leonardo DiCaprio is in it. You know, he, like the whole movie was sold on it being historically accurate. You can see in the footage, he says to this guy, you worry about it being right, I'll make it dramatic. So you can see in that moment, he just threw historical accuracy out the window because it wasn't dramatic enough. Because we need some drama. And that's where the problem is. You know, I have many, many historical movies that were so inaccurate, but some more than others. Do you have a favorite moment? While you think about it, I'm going to tell you one of mine just because I'm looking at it. Now, the end of Argo... If you remember at the end of Argo, everybody in the house runs, goes to get on the airplane. As they're on the, uh, the, the runway, the police come. It's a big chase, and they got to get out of there. That didn't happen. That didn't happen at all. They went to the airplane, and the police later go, hmm, 
we should find those people. But there was not any grand chase at the airports and seeing if they could take off before the police got them. And it's little things like that. It's not just Argo that did that. Some movie, I don't know, last year I think did it as well. <laughs> but it's just so ridiculous that you get to the high point of the story. And I know sometimes real-life events don't have great high points. So you got to figure out something. But that in Argo, just mm, it just stuck with me, and I haven't gotten rid of it yet. Well, for me, I, most inaccuracies like that really bug me. So I don't know if I can pick just one. I'll pick. I'll, I'll tell you my favorite favorite random actress from one of those movies, though. Mm-hmm. Um, it's in Tombstone. As uh-huh. they're walking up to the OK Corral, they don't have a close up or anything, but you can see um, Kurt Russell take his pistol out of his holster and put it into the front coat pocket. The weird little detail that never seen before, but now when you go back and watch, you're never going to be able to unsee it. Mm-hmm. Again, not a close-up. They don't call attention to it. But it was actually something that um, that he said he did when, you know, after the OK Corral happened, they had, you know, they were in court for months, right? Right. And he actually said that was what he did. He took it out of his holster and put it into his front pocket. And the fact that a tiny little insignificant detail like that made its way onto the screen made me so incredibly happy. Now you said that there was something in Bonnie and Clyde that they did like that, but it's uh, it's slipping my mind right now. People should just watch Bonnie and Clyde, though. I will I will say this. Um, like uh, We should plug a channel called... Um, what is it? Uh, like History, uh, History Buff. And it's a guy, this history major, who basically deconstructs period films and tells you what really happened and how accurate they are. And it is ridiculously entertaining. They, they did one uh, for Waterloo, which apparently is so accurate. It, it, it's unbelievable. But then they would also talk about, you know, other movies like, um, Oh, there's a 47 know, like minute version of about the death of Stalin. He did death of Stalin. And, basically was talking about how even though this stuff seems ridiculous, it's not. And this happened. The only difference in Death of Stalin is they took stuff that happened over like the course of like eight, nine months yeah. and they condensed it just to make it flow a little faster. But yeah, he actually used lots of praise on uh, Death of Stalin. Best movie of the year, as far as I'm concerned. We're not doing that right now. I just want to say that. I wanted to get that on record. So we talked about that. We talked about this, little of that, little of this. Is there anything else we want to wrap up with today? Um, no, but next time we record one of these, I want to be there with you. I miss seeing the face, Matt. Oh, uh, that's so sweet. Um, I don't miss your face, but that's okay. I'll pretend. Give the people uh, <laughs> something to watch uh, over the next few days while they do their thing. It's Christmas and New Year's coming up, so you got time. You can get into some Netflix or some Plex or something. What do you got for them? Um, I will say watch uh, Joe Bob Briggs and his uh, Christmas special on Shudder. Nice. Good recommendation, even though I'm not going to enjoy it. Good recommendation. I say watch The Expanse on uh, Sci-Fi Now Amazon. Um, I'm deep into the third season. Oh, yeah. It is so good. It looks so good. Adam from Mythbusters is in the third season. And um, it's just interesting. It visually looks good. They don't overdo the special effects, but when they do them... They look fantastic. Story's good. It's weird. It's odd. It's futuristic. It's Mars. 
I know so many outer space terms now that it's not even funny. So without further ado, let's say uh, goodbye to the people. See ya.